Hi, and welcome again to Sweetman Podcast. I'm Simon Sweetman. I'm a, a music writer. I write some pretty bad poetry and hopefully some pretty good music reviews. I, I talk to people. I write up interviews. I write uh, very short stories and rather long blog posts. And this is the, the second episode of uh, my podcast where I go and chat to musicians. I'm hoping to talk to other writers, uh, film producers, theatre directors, actors. Uh, I, I want to talk to creative people and find out what they do and how they do it and, and put their stories across. Um, the first episode was fun. We talked with Darren Watson and I got some, some pretty great feedback from people. Someone said that my voice was vomit-inducing. Um, so I hope you know they've, they've uh, tuned in for another spew. Um, but uh, this week I got to talk to Rian Sheehan and, and Rian's a, a film composer, a, a He's released albums as a musician as well. Uh, I guess his albums are ambient. They used to almost fit into a genre that you might have called esoterica and early electronica. Uh, Re- disclosure here, Rian's a friend. I've known him for a long time. We used to work together. We talk about this in, in, in the chat that you're about to hear. Uh, we both worked for the CD store uh, company selling selling CDs. and. That, that's when I met Rian, although I had heard his first album before I met him and I liked it as soon as I heard it and I've, I've stuck with his music, I've listened to his music ever since and uh, although, I, although I know him and I've socialised with him you know, a few times over the years, I um, had never really had the sort of conversation with him that we, that we had for this podcast, finding out I guess all of the different things that he's done that have made up a really interesting career from arranging strings for Jacob to playing live shows to producing work for other people and of course the the main bread and butter gig for him is different kinds of uh, film and TV work from from cutting music for ads to uh, scoring short films. So uh, let's have a listen to my chat with Rian Sheehan, Wellington uh, music composer. I'm here with Rian Sheehan and his. Where are we? We're in. Uh, we're on, on. We don't need to name your. <laughs> we don't need to name it's your not, address, but. Um, we're on. Well, what do you What do you call this place? You, this is your lair. This is your studio. It's, it's the, um, the, the. Yeah, I guess it's the bottom of the house. <laughs> <laughs> but this is very much feels like your um, your domain. This is your working. This is your office. Well, I, uh, yeah, it is. It is, and. Um, and studio. I, I spend half my day just doing administration stuff, like emailing yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's also my wife Rashi, as you know, she's also dabbles in music. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, she also spends some time in here when I'm when I'm bored and have to leave the environment. It doesn't, it doesn't look like it's got any sort of woman's touch at all. No. It looks like a guy's studio with heaps of guitars and things that like percussion instruments and uh, and heaps of heaps and heaps of gear. And I saw your last studio briefly and um, like uh, on a brief visit, and that was a lot obviously space wise. Yeah. That was a lot smaller, but it looks like you've got a lot more gear. Yes, no, I, I definitely I'm a sucker for eBay and trade me. That's yeah. for sure. But I love finding bizarre and interesting percussion instruments and yeah. instruments I can bow. And get strange sounds out of. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I want to talk to you about, I guess, uh, particularly, is is how you. I mean, how do you describe yourself within? Uh, what's your job? What do you What do you say to people? Uh, well, these days, I would say that I'm a composer for yeah. film and television, and mainly planetarium dome shows. Yeah. And I've written over a dozen scores for planetarium shows, shows that go all over the world. Yeah. So, um, which is a, a pretty strange niche. 
kind of soundtrack area to get into, but I love it. It's um, it's fantastic. You know, you're only dealing with 25 minute um, films, so um, it's the workload's not too massive, and you've got uh, you know you usually get a, a reasonably good budget to actually go and record parts of, of an orchestra. Um, so it's good fun. Yeah. But before you can be a composer and then and then while you're a composer, uh, you're a musician. Like, you know, you need to be a musician first yeah. of some sort to, mm. to be a composer. Um, so you started as a guitarist? Yeah, that was the instrument that I picked up when I was about 13 and I didn't really take it seriously in, until maybe when I was 17. And when I was 18, I went to the Nelson School of Music and they had a diploma course or something, a contemporary course, and I started playing in cover bands from that point on. You know, and I, from that point on, I was almost uh, making enough money just barely to, to live you know, off music. I was playing like four gigs a night in cover bands. Um, mm. uh, and, and then a friend of mine who I met on that course, actually, Jolene Mulholland, um, him and I, when we both headed down to Christchurch to university at the same time, him and I started up an acoustic guitar duo called the Alchemy Duo and did quite a bit of gigging and touring, um, and that took us to Australia. So that was that was really interesting. So I just kind of, you know, it was something I wanted to do, but I just fell into it, um, I guess, via the guitar, yeah. really. Yeah. So who, who were the sort of early inspirations and interests and influences for you as a guitar player what were you listening um, to that meant anything to you and uh, you know in terms of your own playing mm. filtering into your own playing well a big influence to me was Paul Abana Jones because he was um, a guy that kind of he saw Joel and I and he saw that we had some talent so he he helped get us on a, a tour mm. around Australia so he was the first person to really um, to kind of you know believe in what we were doing, and and I was I was in awe of him. You know, I remember seeing him when I was fourteen or fifteen in a pub, just being blown away. So um, that that was pretty cool. It was like you know, if this guy you know can send us on a tour, you know, hook us up with a promoter and get us on a, an Australian tour, then maybe maybe this is something I should be concentrating more on. And um, and another influence was, uh, was as you probably know from me telling you uh, before is um, Tommy Emmanuel, yeah, who, who yeah. was who was. Um, you know, um, his some of his just as his acoustic guitar, kind of solo acoustic guitar playing, I was really into, and I used to spend hours and hours just working it out. You know, sitting just listening to the tape and um, rewinding and, and working it out, and that that kind of helped me get a bit more solid on the guitar. But yeah, and then um, when I was playing with Alchemy, uh, we almost ended up supporting him when he came through Christchurch, but we actually missed him because we'd been in Australia or we just got back the same day. I can't remember what happened, but he, I managed to get in touch with his um, promoter and Tommy rung my flat and he'd left a message for me. You know, this is like, you know, I was, I was you know, 19, 20 and I was, I was a big fan. So that was pretty crazy. I came home and there was a message from Tommy Manuel saying, hey man, i sorry it didn't work out, but come to the show tonight. And uh, we, and I went to the show and he said, I, you know, I met him after the show. And he said, well, let's let's have a beer tomorrow. Um, I'm I'm here for the whole day. I'm in the hotel, so just bring your guitar and we'll, we'll have a jam. So we went and got a six pack and and went up to his hotel room and had this amazing, you know, he he was like God to me at that point, as from a, you know a guitar player um, point of view. Um, so he, yeah, it was just incredible, really. And yeah, then, I remember seeing him the first um, first time I was aware of him in the early '90s. Seeing him right. on TV doing you know, yeah, doing his yeah. percussiony thing with the guitar and thinking yeah. that that was quite amazing. And also, I think he you know a lot of his work because it's instrumental. Um, 
it, it was very uh, what's the word um, he did really kind of create sonic journeys like a lot of his other work which was you know lots of instrumentation and, and band orientated kind of uh, synth stuff um, and I, I guess that, that that may have kind of resonated with him in some way you know yeah. and but yeah he, I mean he's one of many influences but but to be quite honest, I really I hardly pick up an acoustic guitar at all these days. Yeah, so, yeah. Just, so yeah. well, when do those other instruments or ideas around, and then ideas around arranging instruments, when does that start to come into play for you? Did you have Did you have some sort of uh, you know primary school kind of uh, background mm. around other instruments or anything like that? No, no, no. It was it, it's all been a, a huge learning curve for me, and you know, when the last six, five, six years. Or six, seven years, I've fallen into soundtrack work, and that's predominantly what—that's what I do for a living, yeah. and that's what I, I really enjoy the most. You know, I, there's something really fascinating about writing music to picture, because it's—it's it's very different to writing a piece of music on its own, because you—you're only backing up a scene. You, you know, you're only reinforcing what's emotionally happening. You're helping someone uh, else's vision. You're, you're helping you're, someone you're else's vision, but uh, what was the original question? Oh, I don't know. I wanted to know how you. I want to know. I want to know how you um, started moving towards that in terms of um, putting the guitar down and oh, finding right. other instruments. Okay, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Okay, well, this, no, this this is what happened. Yeah. So this is why well, I guess actually I've never told him this, but Joel, Jolian Mulholland, yeah. he, he was quite a big influence on me because he had. He was he, he's dabbled in recording when we were you know computers were quite expensive then and I mean this was you know it's sort of been the kind of mid late nineties. Uh, and he, he had kind of been dabbling in some home recording and and I really wanted to do some home recording as well, mainly to to record some guitar pieces that I'd written. And so he kind of helped we you know, I had some I think I, I got my student loan one one quarter and went and blew it all on a computer, you know. And uh, and he helped me set that up uh, with a with a um, a program called Call Edit Pro, which is <laughs> pretty basic <laughs> and then from there on I started kind of recording guitar stuff but then I started dabbling in you know I realised that the world was your oyster you could just you know you could dabble in, in sonics and manipulate sound and reverse sounds and just come up with interesting um, sonic textures so uh, and that's when I really fell into I guess melding acoustic guitar sonics with, with electronic sonics I guess yeah yeah so you're still playing in bands and or you've got the acoustic duo yeah. and you're sort of doing yeah. that work. When does that all drop away and you, you know, you immerse yourself in this kind of home rec- primitive, I guess, home recording situation that leads up to your, you know, you released a, a solo album. What yeah, were the, oh, you're what right. Were the okay. steps so, from where you were sort of where you yeah, were talking right. about before? Well, I mean, well, so I studied composition at yeah. university, but on my in my last year, I. My, my tutor and I, we didn't really see eye to eye, and I was, to be quite honest with you, just slacking off, really. And I just wanted to write music. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't, I didn't, the academic side of it just was, you know, and I regret that now because I, I wish I had paid more attention. But um, I, I moved to Wellington in 2000, and so I would have been 23 or 24 then, and um, I had, I, I had a body of work already, pretty much. That's when I bumped into Mikey Tucker, who was uh, him and uh, Mark Cuby were running a magazine called um, Loop Magazine, which was a fashion slash culture slash music magazine. And Mikey's intention was always to kind of he used to release a CD with it every month, and his intention was to take the magazine and turn it into a record label. 
You probably Which she did. No, well, she did. Eventually. Eventually, and because I had enough material, I, although, I, you know, in retrospect, <laughs> it's pretty naive material, but, um, but I had enough there to, to release it. So, you know, Loop, when when the magazine actually fell over, I think they, yeah. they went under. Yeah, they did. Um, we released my album on Loop, uh, and Loop was, Recordings, yeah. So it was the first album. It was the first album yeah. to come out on yeah. Loop. And then uh, followed by the Black Seeds first album as well like a month later yeah 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 pretty swiftly after mm. and then and then Luke got very busy and yeah. a bunch of things came out and uh, for better or worse a kind of Wellington scene and mm. uh, the ideas around this which mm. you were probably never quite part of but the ideas around this welly dub scene and so forth mm. started mm. to happen and that, a lot yeah. of that was percolating around the Luke label it was at the time yeah I mean that, that is a a kind of yeah, it's. I felt very outside that whole scene, to be honest, because it's not music that I was writing. Mm. Um, but but that's I guess that's what kind of kicked it off for me, and and then the album got attention, and um, which was fantastic, and people yeah. people bought it, which I, I was very surprised by. Yeah, yeah. Still am. And um, <laughs> uh, and then there was kind of pressure to release another one, and I guess it kind of carried on from there, and. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. And so it was around this time, actually, that I first met you. Right, yeah. Um, so we used to work. We were yeah. working in the CD store at, right. at the same time, maybe not always in the same shop, but for the same company. And um, you were kind of charged with the task of selling your own album, in a sense. Right? I was, yes. And, and, was, that, and that people yeah. would come up with a copy of your album. Yeah, it was, uh, it was They didn't know that you were. No, there. no, I, n- I never had my, I've never had any, you know, none of my albums have had my face on. Yeah, and you're not making music videos with, you know, you're not singing no, no, and you're no, not no, making, no. Uh, uh, sort of doing performances, so that you were kind yeah. of part of that, which is now pretty standard, the faceless. Well, it was, you know, as you know, it was that, uh, so that was the early 2000s and that's, yeah. that was the, the time where people used to actually buy music. Buy music, um, <laughs> buy products. CDs. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the CD store, so I worked there yeah. full time, and then I think then I went part time. Once you know, I started making more money off music. But mm. um, Mike Munro, who was the manager on the Lampton Key Store, he was you know extremely supportive, really. Of, mm. And he would you know we sold I think something like you know just at that one store something like four or five hundred copies you know just at one store insane because he used to just push it out, out in the front. Yeah, you know. I remember that. So, um, and it's funny because you you know I interview musicians and you always you always ask musicians around uh, how they feel about an album when it's come out and they they sort of give some sort of version yeah. of the response that they don't listen to it anymore and yet right. you, you turned up to work and had to hear <laughs> your own music. Uh, yeah. well, which is easy to switch off to in a sense in that job, but it yeah. must be a lot different when it's your own music. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mike would put yeah. it on, which would annoy me. But um, uh, Did you gauge anything from that, though, in terms of people, you know, actively seeing someone's response to it? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because we're talking about. I guess we're well. We're talking about the first album, yeah. which I was, to be quite honest with you, a little embarrassed about because I, I really didn't have my shit together. Even at the time, yeah, even at the time because I I, I hadn't kind of honed my uh, production skills. You know, like um, I was still very naive and I didn't really know what what the hell I was doing really. Um, so I felt a little bit embarrassed about the album, you know, uh, and it wasn't even mastered properly. Like it was just kind of. That's why we actually did a re-release of it like a year later and f- fixed things up. And and then I guess when the second album came out, Tiny Blue Biosphere, yeah, uh, which is what about three years later. Three years later, which was, it was, you know, it was kind of. I guess it was a bit more aimed at the mainstream, but but it's a development of that paradigm sound, isn't it? It's I guess it was, but also there was there was a little bit of pressure from Mikey 
to come up with something new because you know we, yeah. how long can you wait really but yeah. before people just forget about you and but yes yeah, so that's an interesting album for me as well I don't quite gel with that gel with that album in fact <laughs> I don't gel with most of my albums actually <laughs> but, but I think that's why I ended up doing soundtrack work is because yeah. it, but I yeah. think uh, I was getting, where it sort of starts to make sense for you it seems and maybe we've yeah. talked about this before is the Standing in Silence record yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, and yeah. I think people probably that have, yeah. that have listened to you since then, or even mm. those earlier ones, the, uh, the uh, I don't know if I want to call it a yeah. signature sound, but there are right. motifs and sort of ideas yeah, yeah. that uh, recur from Yes, there. yes. Well, I mean, that, that uh, you know, the, the past three albums or releases, so yeah. uh, it was Standard Silence and Seven Tales of Northwind and Stories from Elsewhere, are all I feel like they're all connected as albums. Yeah, and they're quite a big step away from from the earlier albums. And it, of, that was an inten- that was definitely intentional because I I was sick of electronica and I you know that kind of, the yeah, electronica yeah. I was making I, I love some electronica and it, but you know I'm, I'm just not good enough to to make the electronica that I would like to make. Yeah, you know so it's. Um, also, I think a big part of it was uh, I ended up when you release albums, people want you to play shows. So I ended up playing gigs, quite a lot of gigs, like touring my ass off, especially around Australia, with Jeremiah Ross, like Module, who mm. you know helped me out on the on the synths and everything, and Jess Chambers and um, Kirsten Johnstone, who played flute. And so, but we ended up playing, I mean, in kind of environments like dance parties, clubs. And play, it just kind of got boring, you know. Mm. Like you, and I was playing with a laptop with a MIDI keyboard plugged into it, and yeah. it was just, and not honest. It wasn't honest, and I just felt, um, it just in the end, it, it just became like, well, is this? And it was the remix album too. Yeah, the, the remix album. Yeah, which, which I think it has its moments yeah. actually. But um, now was it, that inspired by? Was it Gary Steele that um, was the music writer that? No, it what, was what? Uh, Grant Smithies. Grant Smithies, and you know he he wrote a review about Tiny Blue Biosphere in the Sunday Star Times, yeah. which now I, in retrospect, I totally agree with it. Right, it was like a two and a half, <laughs> three star. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I mean, he, he was spot on actually. Yeah, uh, at the some, time it hurt my feelings. Right. right, he had some line about music for nature <clears throat> documentaries. Yeah, he, you know, he said this is what Ren will end up doing. He'll end up writing music for nature documentaries or something. Kind of got that right. Was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so he, so yeah. So that's where the title came from yeah, for a yeah, remix yeah. album. Yeah. yeah. Then he slammed the remix album as well. <laughs> but I, I think he saw the humour in it. But um, yeah. So I, I guess so. Yeah. Coming back to yeah, like yeah, just so playing live shows and, and and that's that's where you know it took a long the, the break between Tiny Blue Biosphere and um, was it Standing in Silence was quite a large mm, one. I think. Mm. It's like five years. And by that time, I just dabbled. I was just into new music you know I, I just mm. and I liked the idea of try, you know maybe replicating what was on an instrumental album in a live environment with real musicians and that was something you couldn't really do with the previous albums because they were just someone dabbling away in a bedroom really with the electronics uh, so yeah I guess that that was at the back of my mind when I was writing that music you know was like you know, how could we you know how could we do something interesting with, with the visual elements and in a, in a live environment yeah I'm just trying to remember in that five years between Biosphere and, and Standing in Silence what was happening um, for you in terms of your musical output 
Was there much happening? Was that the start of? Were you starting to take sort of short film or get short film? Yeah, I was doing some. I was doing some a bit of nothing. I mean, I was, you know, I, I didn't know much about film composition at all then, mm. and I, I still don't. It's 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 just a learning curve constantly, you know. Mm. Uh, but the, the more and more work that I've done in that field, that you know, I get more and more confident at it. But yes, I was doing a bit of that, and Rashi and I spent a bit of time in India working on her EP uh, back then, 2006 I think and I had a side project with um, uh, with uh, Paul McClaney, my wife Rashi and uh, Module, Jeremiah uh, called The Blush Response and we did, you know, we played like five gigs and around the place um, and we actually recorded a whole album which we didn't actually do anything with in the end because it was just so cheese balls. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some good songs on. Uh, yeah. Will that come out ever? Will you? Will, it's on Bandcamp. Oh, is it? It's around? just that no yeah, one knows right. about no, it. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> no one clicks on it. No. <laughs> so there's the invitation now. Yeah. Um, and so, what was the process of pulling? I guess the beats back and out and away from your music. Was it just what you said before about? Um, not feeling that you could make the electronica that you wanted to make. No, it was it was picking up the guitar again, but in but then experimenting with pedals and um, and coming up with uh, sonic soundscapes and textures, mm. and and that was where that you know that that was the falling out I had at, with electronica at that point. I just became uninterested in in synthetic sounds and, and synthetic beats. And um, although you know I, I'm, I still love electronic music I just didn't want to make any more of it really even though there are electronic tracks on those albums but mm. um, they're, they're more you know I don't know they're more experimental um, it, it was funny because you know the, the first album and the second album both had tracks licensed to Cafe Del Mar and this is the early 2000s so that whole downbeat thing Cafe culture music Cafe yeah. culture music was huge <laughs> yes it was as you know it was yeah, massive yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know, and often uh, ghastly. <laughs> and, yeah, and so well, just very quickly dated. Quickly know. dated, yes. and that's what happens, you know. And yeah. um, so I, I, I felt like I was pigeonholed, and you know, and they were. I guess they were Cafe Del Mar, ten and eleven. So it's kind of the end of that era. Mm. But they still, you know, they, they sold a lot of albums, I think. But they um, never paid me for them. Well, not the second one because they went bankrupt. <laughs> uh, anyway. So yeah, I just felt I just as that kind of early two thousand sound quickly evaporated. Yeah, uh, I felt like my own sonic style evaporated with it in a weird way. But I, I'm only talking in retrospect mm, now. Mm, like mm. I, at the time, I, I probably really wasn't aware of that. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, um, the, I, maybe the, now's a good time to, to sort of bring in um, the other side of your kind of interests and personality that, that I'm aware mm. of that probably some of your listeners are aware of too is that you like staring out uh, into the sky through a telescope and uh, spend yeah. my entire night <laughs> doing yeah but that that, yeah. that had some I mean I guess it was yeah. always there with, with Paradise Shift particularly yeah, yeah. with Tiny Blue Biosphere but that seemed to well I, I, I did you know I studied astrophysics yeah. at, at university as well that like, sounds way know, better um, than you stare at the sky yeah. through a telescope yeah. <laughs> so but I gave up my second year. I was a slack at university. Yeah. Anyway, that's another story. But yeah, I mean. But something about studying that stays with you, or well, coming out of it stays with you. Yeah, but. I guess. Um, 
It, it is ironic that now I, my predominant gig is writing music for planetarium shows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's, I guess that's the, the totally the vibe that I was going for, especially on the first album, um, mm. or in the second, uh, um, was was just something that was, you know, otherworldly and, uh, you know, like trying to get you thinking about your place, you know, in the cosmos, yada yada, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um I also like that with your music. I guess because I I know a little bit about um some of the um pop influences right. or or things that you yeah. like that you yeah. listen to. I know s- s- something of your tastes from from knowing you for a mm. while and working with you. Um and I like how how bits of that mm. have come sort of more into your right. albums. I'm thinking particularly with stories from elsewhere. There's right. the, those kind of surges where it, yeah. all of a sudden a rock band. Yeah, feel arrives. Well, I mean that. In the uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah. I guess that was just the whole. You know, that comes back to wanting to play with a band and have a drummer on stage, etc. But um, also, a band that I was really into. I still am massively. Um, Hammock. Yeah. Um, from the states, yeah, and they, they were. You know, when I released an EP, oh, well, it's not. It's kind of an, it is an album. It's like thirty eight minutes. Um, Seven Tales of the North Wind. I, you know. Uh, Cheekily asked them if they would remix a track or re, you know, mm. invent a track, and they did, and it, you know, just blew my mind. And and that, I guess, that was a they were, were a big influence for me on on the last album. Uh, um, so they're probably my biggest influence recently, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Here. And um, tell me about how you connected with Jeff Boyle, because you, that's a, right, yeah. a, a sort of a. Um, you've had a hand in Jacob Records now, and, yeah, yeah. and he's obviously been a crucial element to your um, shows yeah. and albums. Yeah, definitely. Um, How so, did that come well, about? with a mutual friend, um, Paul McClaney, and Paul and I, you know, he's known Jeff for years. They used to flat together, and I, I was always a Jacob fan, but I hadn't actually met him. And um, in two thousand, would have been the end of two thousand seven. I was kind of dabbling. I was working on. Uh, standing in silence, I guess, without knowing that it was going that's to be. What it was gonna be. But I had some tracks on, um, like MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and this promoter picked me up for a show in Spain. So they said, "Could you know how big is your band?" And I said, well, I, well, "I don't have a band." And they said, "Well, could you play a show at a festival in Spain in Malaga?" And I said, oh, "Sure." And then I, I just you know I was trying to work. It, I, I rang my friend Paul, and I was just like, "How am I going to do this?" And he was like, "Well." You know, listening to a lot of that stuff you've written, why don't you get Jeff? So I, I rung Jeff up. We'd never even spoken to each other. Mm. And uh, two days later, this was like literally a week before the gig. And then two days before the show in Spain, it was the first time I met him. So he came down to Wellington, he turned up with his guitar and, and pedal box, and yeah. and we had a little jam, worked out some things. For, and then the next thing, you know, we were in Spain playing a show, which was really f- funny. So that's that's the way I met Jeff, you know, wow. and we became really good mates from that moment on. And yeah, I was going to say it seems like a, a, a musical partnership or relationship that's sort of formed around a, a yeah, some we, similar influences yeah. and ideas around how to shape music. So, Definitely, I mean, um, we're both you know huge fans of the same kind of bands, and um, all they, you know he's into kind of edgier stuff, obviously. Um, they they just they're such a good live band as you know like yeah, they just yeah. they just totally nail it live and I think that's that's a big difference some bands just don't necessarily they can't pull off what they can pull off on an album but I think mm. Jacob can and 
and that's that's a fantastic thing. So, I, you know, when Jeff asked me to be involved in the last album, that's I was just like, yeah, God, man, this would be awesome. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And by that, we're talking the most recent Jacob album, the recent Jacob, string yeah. arrangements, and yeah. by, by this point, this is kind of what you do now, or big, a big part of what you do. Yeah, is that yeah. You'll, so, you'll yeah. actually get called in to arrange. Yeah for other people when you're composing and yeah yeah and I, I mean I love I love working with um, you know being able to write for for a string a section is if you've got fantastic players and we do in Wellington we're very lucky yeah. because we have the NZSO here so we have some access to some amazing players um, it's it's just it's always such a thrill when you've written something and then you you hear it being performed by these players you know it's mm. just it's quite it's quite addictive really yeah. so you, you. When did the goal for you, if that's what you can call it, when did the goal uh, about film composing fully sort of realise itself? When did you go? Well, this is actually what I want to do, and mm. now this is what I'm doing. Uh, well, I think for a long time I was kind of you know kidding myself, thinking I, I wanted to be a film composer. Yeah, one day I'm going to be a. One day I can do that, yeah. but I I really had no idea as to you know how much work is involved and how much. You, you have to kind of up your skill level and understand the sonics of different instruments and, and, and you have to do your homework. You can't just, you know, depending on what kind of genre you're working in. But I guess um, I was thrown into it with a TV series called The Cult in 2009, 2010, 2010. And it was a 12-part TV series and um, they wanted me to write the score and I had no idea how to, but I did. So I wrote the score, which was just a huge amount of work, you know. Like when so you we, say they wanted you to write the score, do you mean someone was aware of your music yes, and yeah, came yeah, to you yeah, through yeah, that yeah, kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, like, yeah. So yeah. the, the uh, director actually, uh, and so I was just thrown into it like it was full on, you know, because we, we were talking 12, 48 minute episodes for television ad breaks, but um, a lot of music, yeah. So that was. That was a big learning curve, eh? Just and being that, thrown into that, but and the yeah. show kind of tanked. It did, yeah, yeah, it did. You, um, I remember you mm. talking at the time, sort of defending mm. the show to me, saying, you know, I yeah. think it's, I think it's good. It's just missed its. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think, it, yeah, I mean, in sort retros- of window here. In retrospect, it was probably too long. It's, yeah. they didn't need twelve episodes. They too ambitious. Yeah, um, and therefore just too, too ambitious, but. I liked the I liked the idea. I liked the premise of it. I thought, yeah, definitely thought it had potential. Yeah. And mm. your uh, I didn't watch a lot of it, but uh, your music was well received within it. It, it, yeah. it worked yeah. well in it, but it it felt like this continuation of the sound that you've been building, and yet it it was some of it was quite rushed. <laughs> right. I think I you know like I literally had a week for each yeah. episode, maybe five days for a couple. Yeah. Just not a lot of time when you're talking about you know some of the work I do now. I have far more time to write the music and you know I just finished on a documentary film and that took me maybe four months you know okay and, so and that's that and that was only a, it's an hour and a half but there's just so much music in it, it just, now that that film's uh in the film festival and this yeah. episode of this podcast will, will 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 run before the film festival so how much can you tell us about that music and that and that documentary obviously it's embargoed it's screening at the festival yeah yeah so well I can yeah I mean you it's, can it's, talk about yeah, it's called Belief, the Possession of Janet Moses. So yeah. it was, um, it's a, a documentary slash doco drama, I guess, so re- some yeah, reenactments, recreations, recreations yeah. but also real interviews yeah. uh, around the story of Janet Moses, who was, uh, who lived in Wainui Amata in 2007, and her extended family thought that she was possessed by a 
a, a demon and so they well to cut a long story short they you know it's it's, a, it's just a very sad story of um mental illness and abuse really um but i guess in the context of good intentions if that makes any sense mm-hmm. so it's quite a tricky it was it was a very tricky soundtrack to write because you know we had to be be very careful because it's i mean the strange thing about this film and the story is that her parents and her loved ones all loved her immensely and they they thought they were doing the right thing and it's um and i guess not only is it a sensitive topic but uh even more so because it's so recent it's, yeah 2007 yeah. so it's yeah, it's like what's that eight years yeah um so you know yeah. rather than some salem witch yeah. story from, yeah yeah you know, from yeah a couple of hundred years ago that's been it is a fascinating story though and wow. I, I do recommend checking out yeah it's premiering at the yeah, this is the, the bit where you're supposed to do the plug. Yeah, this is the plug. So it's premiering at the at the film festival, so which is all around Auckland and Wellington. Auckland and Wellington, um, Maine. And yeah, and I, but I believe it is playing in Christchurch and yeah. a few other cities. But um, it was it was hard to work on. So you've it's an it's an orchestral score or an uh, it's a, it's a mix a mixture yeah. of um, oh, so I recorded a nine piece string section and so there's lots of piano parts which Rashi played. And but there are also some quite heavy-handed electronic elements. <laughs> some Did you pull those off the earlier of, albums? <laughs> yeah, kind of brutal electronic moments. Yeah, but I, I am very proud of the score actually, and, mm. and, and um, I mixed it with Lee Preble. Yeah, and you know, I mean, nothing's ever 100 percent how you want it because you know you've got a deadline and you have to finish it. But I think in retrospect, we I did the best I could under the circumstances. So, so I remember yeah. saying to you at the time, I thought that the music from the um, the TV show you were talking about before um, could have been a standalone soundtrack. TV show, which one? The Cult. Oh, the Cult. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I yeah, cult. Yeah. Um, so it could have been a standalone soundtrack. Is that something that you want to sort of see happen with your um, film scores that they get released as a as an album? Like, is that something well, I'd like to release. Yeah, I'd like to release um, belief, the Belief soundtrack. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but I mean, you know, I'm not sure there's a huge amount of people out there that listen to soundtrack music. I mean, some soundtracks are just brilliant on their own they, they work on their own beautifully yeah. you know like you know the soundtrack to Blade Runner for example yes. Vangelis like it's just it's it's perfection as a piece of as a listening experience sure but other soundtracks don't necessarily translate yeah, uh, unless, unless you're you know if you're I've listening, been listening yeah. to the new Mad Max right soundtrack, yeah. <laughs> soundtrack yeah. which is quite yeah. quite great in yeah, parts yeah. but particularly jarring yes none, yeah. none of the images to go yeah, like yeah. I, I love the film yeah, more yeah. than I thought I would actually but the soundtrack is quite a strange beast on its own on its own but it, but it makes sense within the context of the Absolutely. film perfectly yeah yeah yeah. so it, it is yeah that's a, it's, that is a, a tricky situation but I think some but, of your listeners or, or um, maybe I'm just uh, I'm speaking for myself as someone who's written about uh, your, your recent albums is that people feel that they almost seem like a soundtrack to a movie that hasn't been made so so therefore right, you, yeah, you yeah, releasing yeah. actual soundtrack albums as your work yeah yeah would make sense to your listeners sure. yes well i'm yeah. yeah well hopefully i mean i i haven't actually released a, a soundtrack pro- yeah. properly um, yeah. um but but if you did i feel like um that's that's not going to alienate yeah, yeah, no, 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 audience no, totally not as, no, no, as, no. at all it's, oh, yeah, right. it, it makes sense to them yeah in fact next month um i, I just finished like last week we just did the final mix at Park Road. So I've just finished a, another Planetarium show, okay. Dome Show. It's a 3D, 360 Dome Show, yeah. uh, which is produced in the UK and narrated by Andy Circus, who's had a lot to do with Wellington, obviously. Um, 
yep. being the voice of Gollum, etc. Yeah. So that that was a really fun project to work on, and the soundtrack for that is 25 minutes long, very orchestral, very animated. Some of it's quite, uh, uh, I guess, atmospheric as well, but a lot of it's very orchestral, and that they are releasing that as a free um, soundtrack as right. a da- when, when the when the Dome Show is released worldwide. So. You'll be able that, to download that. So either. there'll be a free download. So that, I guess that will be cool. my first yeah, um, yeah cool. soundtrack. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the um, the Planetarium uh, soundtracks, but I thought since you the film festival film you've been talking about, mm. I thought um, another thing I wanted to bring up before that was the another fairly recent piece of work you did in terms of its release was mm. the Earthquake documentary uh, soundtrack. The yeah, well, I, yeah, Day the World yeah. Changed. I actually only co-wrote the score. Right. So, um, but, uh, yeah, so I can't take all the credit for that. No. But it, the reason I wanted to bring it up now was you talked before about uh, being sensitive to uh, what was happening in the, you know, in the film that you... So the same thing is true with this documentary. It's a pretty sensitive or hugely sensitive subject. Um, and you have uh, also spent time in Christchurch. So I wondered how that impacted on um, how you how you put that together, what your thoughts were around working on that. Yeah, I mean, well, well, I went back to Christchurch after oh, maybe a year and a half after that happened. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was just, if, you, if you've been there since. Yeah, only yeah, recently, actually. Recently, I, yeah. I, I, I was not in Christchurch. I didn't visit for, I don't know, a good couple of years after the quake. So I think a right. lot of the, it still um, blew me yeah. away to be taken close to the, um, Centre of the town that's not there anymore, and even flying in, it is, it's yeah, pretty, it's just you know, overwhelming. But, yeah. And I think, it, unless you've been there, you, you just really can't fathom how and what a just a huge event it was like yeah. for Christchurch. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's quite traumatic going back there after you know having lived there for for years. But um, yeah. yeah, so well, the documentary was particularly hard to work on yes. because just because well, of I just watched it again there. recently, and I was, right. and I was talking with someone about it, saying it's a it is, you know, it is a tough watch, but a really, really good piece of, um, you know, it's an, obviously mm. a historic, or will be a historic yeah. document, and it's important, but um, it quite a challenge because obviously um, there's this whole, <laughs> you know, region mm. that yeah. a lot of those people wouldn't yeah. ever want to watch it um, for what they've been through, and then yeah, some, yeah. It, it's part of the process of understanding what went on. Yeah, it, it's funny because. Like when I first started working on that, you know, Nick Buckton, he, he wrote a, a huge amount of the score. I only kind of wrote the main themes, really. But um, but I did spend quite a bit of time on it, and mm. it was, um, yeah, it was really hard to work on at the beginning. But I think by you become, when you're working on something and it's just there all the time and you're, you're, it's in your headspace, you do become a little bit, um, I guess, uh, what's the word, you know, just... You just switch off at some point, and it's yeah. it's very. I mean, you know, I've worked on some some dark New Zealand stories. Like I worked mm. on a, f- a TV film called Siege about um, yeah, uh, of course, about Yar Molina, the Napier gunman, yeah. and um, that was pretty dark to work on. Yeah, and yeah, I guess after a while you just shut off and, and um, <laughs> try and do your job. <laughs> sure. Um, so, tell me about how the kind of planetarium uh, soundtrack work came into because that's been a I guess a fruitful and mm. in, in, in um, more ways than one a fruitful source of work for you it has yeah creatively well, financially I would assume yes yeah. more so and than scoring well, New Zealand based well I mean I, I, up until time. up until the day that changed my life the Christchurch yeah 
um, other than a couple of advertising gigs, I, I hadn't had any work from New Zealand in maybe two years. Right. So, you know, things have changed within the, the TV industry, yes. especially in New Zealand. Yes. Um, uh, so, but I, so I, I am, I am lucky that I, I do, I do get work from overseas, um, not just planetarium work, but a lot of advertising work. And, yeah. Um, and, but, you know, like planetarium, the planetarium shows are just so fun to work on because every show is different. Uh, it's, it, it, yeah, um, and so it's a, it's a, a massive challenge for me to to try and write music that's way outside my comfort zone, you know. Now these are so, quite an immersive experience. They're like, just, they're just like big CGI fests. Yeah. So, you know, so uh, the latest one, We Are Stars, is about the Big Bang and, you know, and evolution and how, it, you know, the, the universe's evolution and human evolution and how we got to this point. So there's just, you know, there's a lot of um, CGI, you know, some cool moments in it. I worked on one for Google two years ago because for X Prize, uh, the Google X Prize, which is a, um, a competition to get to the moon, which is happening next year. So if you if you can land a probe on the moon, uh, you, you win forty million dollars. <laughs> uh, so X Prize funded this this planetarium film yeah. that went to every single planetarium around the world. So wow. and that was great fun to work on. You yeah. know? It was narrated by Tim Allen, the voice of Buzz Lightyear. Yep. So you, and they're great fun to work on. You just get to have a lot of fun within a within the space of twenty five minutes, and um, they're challenging. Are they always that length. Yeah. They're always twenty four. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah twenty five yeah. minutes. Why twenty four? Twenty five minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So you can think of it as a uh, a single piece of music. Yeah. But you've yeah. got a lot of room to move, or potentially a lot of room to move within that. To to yeah, I say move moods. Well, I mean, atmospheres. Most of the work I do is for the the National Space Centre in in the UK, and they have a creative team. And Max, the director, he's um he's pretty hands on with how he wants. You know, it, yeah. it, the team music's always in place when I start on it. So. You are kind of guided by the emotion of the team mm-hmm. music, but sometimes I'll, I'll just take a chance and just write something completely different, and sometimes it works. But uh. where did you where did this where did this gig come from? Like, oh, okay, so uh, how well, did you get it? Yeah, Max, um, who's a director I've worked on nine or ten together, um, planetarium shows and other not only planetarium shows but also other installations, mm. you know, like uh, for museums and things in England um, and America. And he had stumbled on a track of mine from Standing in Silence. And so it was just totally random. So he emailed me and said, could we license this track? We want it to be our main theme for a planetarium show. And I got in touch and said, well, could I write the entire score for you? And then we, you know, <laughs> and then it started from Did there. Did you feel cheeky doing that? Did you think like, oh, this is a chance, this might work, this might Yeah, yeah, I you, totally. Were you expecting I'd, an answer, no um, thanks, we just want to license that track? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, it didn't take too much persuasion though. I, mean, I think I sketched some ideas and um, and they were into it, so. But every time we work on one of these, we try and, you know, the production level goes up and up and we try and push it and that this new show is just fantastic. And, the, you know, I got to go and record... Um, 20 players um, from a well-known local orchestra in Wellington here and and then mix it at Park Road in 5.1 so you know there was a bit of a budget to do that that kind of stuff which is wow. fantastic and we're, we're so lucky to have those facilities here in yeah. Roma, you know walking distance yeah incredible and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then send off your 5.1 mix and 
Kabang. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Um, so you're getting a lot of work through a kind of word of mouth now, like people are mm. either hearing a track or obviously you've got the CV of work too. Yeah. International yeah, I mean, work. I, I, are you I used actively to, yeah. canvassing for a no, lot of work? No, no, not so much. In fact, you know, just up until like Monday, I was feeling too busy, you know, like I had. Yeah. So I had. I was just finishing up on... Um, the, this local doco feature and the planetarium show and I, I don't like being overwhelmed it's, it can be quite I don't think it's it's necessarily good for your creative mm. juices to be mm. to have too many projects on at once but um, uh, I'm more excited about putting my Blade Runner collection back together which I just <laughs> loaned the Roxy <laughs> yeah. so um, I'm going to have a, a break for a little bit but I'm, I'm working on you know I'm working on some stuff you know, writing some string arrangements for um Thomas Oliver, very yep. talented local chap, and I've, you know I've got a couple of advertising jobs that I've, I've got to finish, and um, yeah, it just seems to, I'm lucky. It just seems to keep coming, and hopefully the work does keep coming. You know, um, it, speaking about being overwhelmed by work, yeah. Uh, tell tell us a bit about the um, the process of putting on, I guess, the Standing in Silence live show, and then the st- oh, right, you, did, yeah. you sort of did stories from elsewhere, which which was bits of that album and. Yeah, and merging yeah. into standing as well. The, these were pretty big shows, and, and I guess you've done them three or four times in yeah, Wellington, and, and yeah, and, and, and a couple and, of times in Auckland. Yeah, yeah, and um, well, they, they're great. They're so fun to put on, but, but they take a lot of work. work is yeah, involved and, in them because we're talking yeah. how many people? Like, well, the last one we had, we had a was the biggest. We had a what did we? We had a fifteen-piece string section yeah. or something, or sixteen from Wellington Orchestra, and then we had maybe. 10 other players so, yeah. so you know maybe there were 30 people on the stage yeah and all, all for some very quiet ambient music so it's quite fun well I mean it's not it's not all ambient some of it's yeah. loud but yeah but I, predominantly it's uh, I guess it's atmospheric uh, filmic uh, cinematic I would say um, they're great and I'd love to do them all the time but they cost so much money to put yes. on yeah, and they're, yeah, they're a h- huge financial risk um, I still work with Loop, you know, on the shows and yep. um, kind of take the risk evenly and yep. and it's always petrifying, you know. Yeah, like I bet. A, a few days before the show and you've only <laughs> got 300 seats of it filled of, <laughs> and it's you're playing at the, the opera house yes. and you need to, like, get 800 seats to break even. But um, luckily we've... we've, we've um, We've managed to when just you, just get enough people every time to, when you to look not out lose money. It, when you look out at the all of these people that have come to see yeah. you and your music, and you're not putting on a concert like a like a mm. rock band, no, um, no, and you're not putting on quite a, mm. a show like an orchestra, you know, a recital. Mm. It is it is probably yeah, very yeah. much somewhere in between. It must be pretty gratifying to see. A full theatre or yeah, close to a full theatre. It's amazing. And our, our first our first show that we did... Um, at, it, it was, at Downstage. It, oh, yeah, that's right. No, that I forgot, was, about, I forgot yeah. about Downstage. That was, we had some technical issues with that, so I'll just forget about that one. But um, <laughs> It's funny you say that because I think that that was really well received. I mean, I, was, yeah, yeah. I, I almost feel like, for me, that was my right. favourite. Oh, interesting. Um, oh, we had it, we had this, it was, we had this, because it was more intimate. We had an issue with the click... It was, I it was, it was lagging, so yeah. the whole band was kind of sounded like we were drunk. But I guess the music's so slow anyway, you wouldn't notice. <laughs> but um, so yeah, anyway. But totally, sorry, I've yeah, brought up uh, the downstairs. No, it's, it's good. No, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that people liked it. Yeah. Anyway, I, you know, and then we, we played the opera house show, and yeah, I, I was the first show we did. I think we had, we sold it out, so it was like yeah. twelve hundred fifty. That blew my mind. I just, yeah. I blew my mind because not from an egotistical kind of point of view. It was just like I, I didn't actually know that. 
that kind of music had that an audience. The following, yeah. An audience. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, I didn't, I didn't... An active following. Yeah, an, right. an active following, you know, for, for music that is... It's not mainstream at all, and it's... Um, I guess some of it's quite esoteric. So. I was going to say, use the dreaded word, it's background. But yeah, it is, yeah, yeah, but it is yeah. for a lot of people in their, in, yeah, yeah, in their yeah, lives. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, but it's great that, that some people are willing to come and sit there and not let it be background music, to absorb yes. it fully. And, um, and that you're taking that challenge and that risk of presenting it as not background music. You know, exactly, yeah. And so, saying, yeah, here yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So that, they're great fun to put on, but they just that is not realistic to. So there's yeah. nothing like that in the in the pipeline. Right, at the yeah, stage, we're or? talking about doing another. <laughs> not realistic. So <laughs> well, not realistic. I mean, what I mean is they're not realistic to <laughs> to play often. That's and right. I guess the only reason we have a good crowd turning up is is because I don't I only play like once every two years. Maybe, yes. Possibly, I don't know. Yeah. Um, must be our support. And you're involving some other people that yeah, have got exactly. their own yeah. followings too. Um, yeah. That, uh, yeah, Jeff that, from, yeah. from Jacob is an obvious example. Almost an ambient version of Fly My Pretties, but <laughs> but not quite. But um, yeah, so they're, they're, they're great fun to put on. I'd love to do more of them. I'd love to take it overseas. We had yeah. an opportunity year before last where we almost played a couple of shows in Dubai. Wow. And it fell over the week before the promoter pulled out, cause, uh, which was just horrendous because we had, everyone was booked and ready to go. So that, you know. But um, and I've had I've had people you know inquire about bringing the show over to England and but we can't we just it's just I, I don't want to do a, a smaller version of it I love the idea of uh, I love the idea of there being a, a reasonably large string section involved and yeah. and you know everybody in the band has their place in the band and I can't see you know anybody not being there really um, yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was, and this has happened a, a couple of times that I'm mm. aware of, maybe more, was this thing where you'll post on Facebook every now and then that someone's basically ripped off your music. You'll you'll find mm. um, yeah, yeah. someone's, and there was a recent example of it. Oh, it's fairly oh, recent. Yeah, I, uh, can you talk us through that? Well, I mean, he he was just this cheeky little kid living in Mexico somewhere, and he. He was uploading. He was he, doing it to a lot of people. He was doing it to a lot of people, not just me. In fact, I was put on to him through, uh, else through a friend of mine, uh, Keith Kenneth Helios, yes. and he got in touch with me and said, "Hey, this guy's just ripped five of my tracks off. He's, you know, I found he's put them under his own name on, and they're everywhere. Yeah. And and I found one of yours. I'm sure this is one of yours, but it's unreleased. But it's on. You've got it on SoundCloud. Now and he'd done nothing to them. He hadn't changed the sort of. No, of nothing. Them. He hadn't no, added no, the, no, he had these weren't remixes. No, or no, no. That's happened to me nothing. before. I've had yeah. someone. D- do that and uh, you know without asking and I actually really liked like. the remix but it just pissed me off so much that they, they thought they could do that that we had yes. it taken down I mean I'm, all like, they listen, probably needed to do was email I'm flattered if people want to use my music yeah. and but if they if they ask me first if they want to use it in a, for sampling or something that's fantastic I, usually I wouldn't wouldn't care you know if there's a very unlikely situation where it becomes like a, a big hit or something then please you know yeah, hook yeah. me up but yeah, yeah. otherwise I don't give a shit about money <laughs> but um but so this kid, he was just uploading uh, music under. In fact, he, he's a composer, I guess. Yeah. And uh, but he was uploading music under his own uh, pseudonym and and just claiming it as his own. He'd been doing it since two thousand eight. Wow. Including cinematic orchestra tracks on his website, which is still up. He has this backstory about being an ex-member of cinematic orchestra, which is which he would have been thirteen when he left. <laughs> so. Um, Interesting, uh, um, but it was a lesson, you know. Even APRA, they'd never seen it happen to a New Zealand artist. Anyone can upload music using yeah. uh, an aggregated site like TuneCore, mm. which just sends 
all your music into every digital you know shop you can imagine so like including Spotify or whatever streaming sites so one aggregated site can do that and this kid was just uploading music and apparently he had something like 17,000 downloads you know which so if yeah. you if you're paying 99 cents a download you know that we you know it's like so he was picking up something from he's making some money out of it and, for, you know and wow there's nothing in place to stop that from happening unfortunately no. so that's happened to you before or was it just the case no, that's that the, that's the that first time someone's done that sold that? one of my tracks under their own yeah. name yeah but the the previous um, issue was a Japanese artist basically put a beat so he used one of my tracks and, and just he just put a beat under it kind yeah. of yeah he, I guess you could call it a remix it was not remixed enough to to make it to his own track, it was right. it was like one of my tracks with some beats under it. Yeah, and he he didn't ask me. So what happened there? Did uh, the lawyers get involved? No, because you know, I yeah. mean, we're talking about small labels here. Yeah, and yeah. They, the label were very apologetic. They had no idea, of, of course. And um, he was a DJ slash producer, and I think they can get confused things, sometimes. <laughs> I was going to say things get a bit blurry in, yeah. in terms of their intentions and some, how they some are. of them yeah. can get confused. Yes, I think because they're playing a record, they think that maybe they made the music as well. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, what's um, what's the goal with this kind of um, this pro- this sort of production office that you have here, this 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 um, studio? What mm. what do you do each day? What happens? You get up and work, but what is work for you? Obviously, there's several different projects at sometimes, and then and then you look yeah. for a bit of downtime. Uh, but how do you keep your hand in? in terms of writing and playing? Uh, well, I like working to deadlines. So if I'm working on a project, it just it keeps you in shape. You know how yep. much time you've got, and that's that can be quite petrifying, and that'll make you pick up an instrument <laughs> if you want to get paid. Yeah. yeah. So I usually just... I mean, a lot of the work I do now is um, on samplers and on the computer, um, uh, kind of mocking up, uh, you know, piano or string arrangements, uh, and then I work with a couple of very talented um, orchestrators um, Ewan Clark, who's in Wellington, and Ryan Ewan's in Auckland, um, on different projects, and I hand the music to them. They get it, you know. They they orchestrate it, put it on paper for me because it's just so time consuming. And then we go and record it. Um, yeah, so that's. But I, I just yeah. I, 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 it's, it's sometimes I just sit down here and bang my head against a wall, you know, having a writer's block. But other times, usually at night. I work at night, and a lot of the time, that's my most creative time. I think. Um, when the kids have gone to sleep yeah. and there's a bottle of wine next to me. Yeah. You've got um, a lot of movie, you mentioned the Blade Runner stuff, you've got a lot of mm. movie memorabilia, a lot of posters, a lot of framed posters, signed posters. Um, what, you've obviously got um, some film composing heroes and influences now, but when mm. did that, you know, you talked about before about it not being a necessarily a conscious thing to move into film composing posing as an original goal so where did those kinds of things come for from you for you um yes well no i i kind of were I you always a movie watcher you know you i've always, always been a, I've, always, a movie I've always been a massive sci-fi yeah fan, yeah so, and, um, but as that as a movie yeah. watcher say or a, were you or mm. and even sci-fi on tv and so forth were you always in some way listening into the score was it always oh, a absolutely. huge component it, it, it's it's so distracting now I mean you know even watching Game of Thrones for example I, you know which was just finished last week but I find it hard to focus on the, on the story because I'm yeah. listening to what's happening musically and, and also even with well know, that's your job now so I mean that's understandable yeah yeah now. but um, 
I, I, no, I think some soundtracks have been really influential on me. I mean, I think Van Gallis's Blade Runner soundtrack is probably one of the most influential albums soundtrack I've ever heard actually mm. for me. But um, Cliff Martinez, huge fan mm. of his stuff. Um, uh, the Solaris soundtrack is. You know, yeah, you literally, put, literally gave me a writer's you, block when I first heard that. You, you know, like that, for about a year. You put me onto that. I've still never yeah. watched the film, and I kind of don't want to, even though. Mm. Well, I it's feel not like available. You can't. I mean, you might be able to. I, I've never seen it on Blu-ray. It's not on yeah. Netflix. It's yeah. not anywhere. I, I don't know why, but um, it's not that bad. Really, I thought as a remake, it was yeah. pretty good. Um, and you know, I mean, Max Richter, um, Clint who, Mansell, Clint Mansell, the, the new generation film composers, which I, I like them because they're a bit more experimental and they don't come from. They just come from a different world. They, mm. A lot of them come from a rock world. I was going to say they or, yeah. come from indie rock. Yeah, indie um, rock world. It's ex- quite experimental. Yeah, yeah, and and it's not traditional in the sense of they're not making big Hollywood blockbuster soundtracks, yeah. which can be sometimes That's, be a little kind of lifeless in a way yeah. because they're just so there's so much perfection and in, in, in you know involved. What about TV? Can, like, what about someone like Mike Post? Mike TV Post. guy. Do you know much yeah, about him? Yeah, yeah, like his stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, who else? Oh, there's so many. I just, um, yeah. I mean, I, I've been listening to a lot of uh, lately heaps actually of uh, Warren Ellis and um, Nick, Cave. Nick Cave. And uh, yeah, do you I like lo- the new one? Yeah, I love it. Although that that is a soundtrack. You know, we were talking about this before. It, yeah. it, it's a soundtrack that doesn't quite work. Maybe no, it without yeah, yeah. It, like on its own. But I, I haven't seen the film. But I, I listen, it's a beautiful soundtrack. It's and I love the. They just those guys are just really inspirational. I love their work. What know. about Trent Reznor's stuff? Because he's a, a polarizing kind of yeah. guy for people. Do you feel love his work as a film composer? I think he's fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. Atticus Ross, um, yeah, his producer. Um, I think they're they're great because they they approach it in a you know in a totally different way. They approach film music in a, a very different way to say uh, like a traditional uh, composer would with um, you know with pen and paper and. They're just experimentalists, really, and I think that's how they work. Mm. They just come up with ideas and then throw them to their director, basically, and then refine them around the scenes. And that's a really interesting way to work because a lot of composers don't work like that. They they write to a scene. Uh, like this film I just finished on, you know, a, a lot of the work I just, maybe like maybe 40% of it, I, I just wrote ideas based on the feeling of the film. And, and a lot of those ideas actually they just was like a jigsaw and we actually managed to fit them into scenes and then refine them mm. um, yeah what about in New Zealand what about um, film composers TV composers in New Zealand oh, without a doubt I think Victoria Kelly would have to be yeah the most just extremely talented film composer yeah, yeah. Uh, is, there a, is there a kind of uh, Facebook group for you guys or an email list do you <laughs> do you compare or do you have annual drinks is there a way you catch up and yeah actually that's we, well we a couple of us I've been invited to one of the yeah <laughs> one of the you know like last year we had a whole bunch of us composers there's not many composers that's no. the, like um, you know David Long is another one who's yeah, a fantastic yeah. composer uh, Stephen Gallagher works down at Park Road as a music editor mainly he's an amazing composer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, John Sarthas has done lots of great work, but I thought that um, Score for White Lies, right. a recent film, was pretty cool. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I've heard some of it, it sounded great. So, um, yeah, so there's not many people doing it for a living. No. So it's a very hard, very hard thing to get into, to make a living from, but a lot of people that want to get into it, but which is interesting, you know, so you've, you've, there are a lot of, you know, younger people that want to be film composers and TV composers, but there's just not really a huge amount of work, especially, 
it, because in television now things have changed. You know, production music libraries are, are being used more, and they're not hiring composers. So, music is the value behind soundtracks has, has become less and less, and um, which is a shame. But mm, mm. Mm, mm. and what about the desire to to, to rock out to um, to jam with people to play in a band again? Is is that? Uh. Um, suppressed happily at the moment is that I'm quite happily just writing music in my yeah. own space um, and so if it calls I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever been a very good performer and it's not something that I comes naturally comes naturally want. to me you know and um, that's that, I guess that's why when I do shows we I kind of hide behind other musicians and visuals you know and yeah and and uh, hazes yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean I, I picked up the acoustic guitar yesterday you know, upstairs with, with all the kids around, and yeah. you know, I changed the guitar strings for my oldest daughter, Neva, and um, yeah, and I started playing again, and that was that was awesome. I should play more. And what the, are the kids? What do they understand about what you do? Uh, well, it's interesting because I, it's, 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 it's my work, you know. Yeah. So like I, I, and it's it's hard to be distracted, and I try and just shut the door and do my own thing. So when and when the end of the when I've spent a whole day working, I'm kind of over music. I just mm. I want to go upstairs and and do something else, you mm. know. Mm. So um, you know they they all come in here. Uh, Neva Neva's become a very proficient, talented songwriter. So she's always playing guitar and you know dabbling away. And um, she's just about to. And does she record herself or you guys? You know, like. Uh, yeah, she's recorded. Record. Yeah, she, yeah, she's cool. She should do more of it, really. Yeah, but she's, very lucky. I've set her up in a. She knows how to. Basically, use so she can come in and record herself with a little help yeah, from yeah. Dad to set her yeah. up. But um, awesome, and uh, Very yeah, yeah, it's um, it is funny because I feel like it's my workspace. So I, I'm a little bit selfish about it too. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like the kids coming in. It's just like when you're distracting. Sorry, when you're working on a on a cue and you've got your your your, your head's right in it, and then and your two year old comes in and starts hammering away on your her toy piano over there. It just you know throws it you out of the throws, space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um what's what's the grand ambition the grand ambition um, to keep to keep making a living through this i suppose but yeah beyond, i'd be lucky to it? do that yeah yeah uh, i i well you've I, done I just, pretty, you've done yeah. pretty well like you've when i say you've done pretty well you've managed this mm. kind of living for half a dozen years or so i i'm very yeah i think i'm very yeah. lucky that i've that i make a living off writing music and um and hopefully that continues uh i would like to do more film work, you know. Yeah. Uh, features. But also, it's largely music you want to do. I mean, there's a commercial aspect to it, um, hugely. Yeah, yeah. But it's still, even when you're fitting in with someone's vision, the things that mm. I've heard um, that you've made outside of your albums, it, you know, has your flavour. You're not. Mm. Yeah. It has a style that you're and a sound that you're building up. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's there's something just that fascinates me about writing for film. Because, and I, I can't really put it into words, but I think it's it's just, it's just so incredibly challenging, you know. And I think that's it's easy to, to pick up a guitar or pick up an instrument and come up with some chord progressions, but but weaving it around uh, the context of what's happening emotionally within a scene is is not as easy. And um, and it's been a huge learning curve for me over the years. But I feel like I'm getting better and better at it. So it's something that I, I just want to keep keep doing you know it's it's, it's enjoyable it's mm. um, it's challenging yeah mm. um i don't really know how to wrap this up but i was thinking um we mentioned grant smithies earlier and what he had said about mm. the the nature documentaries now and how you say that review hurt at the time but 
he got it right and he's pretty much you know yeah. pretty much had it right about that album and summed up yeah. in a way what you've gone through um what does the critical process mean to you with your work and have you been slammed by lots of people and internationally have you been uh, has it had any kind of impact on what you're doing I guess this is a particularly in regard to the albums and the shows rather than the yeah no well the soundtrack the, work no I, I mean luckily I haven't the um the, the latter albums haven't been the last one's been very well received overseas um mm. stories from elsewhere where I haven't I don't think there's been one negative review that I've picked up on but um so you know some people like it I guess maybe you, the people that don't like it just don't write about it don't write about it are you able to um take anything from that does it and mean anything much to you beyond a sort of vote of confidence are there things people are saying or um I think yeah reviews are interesting because you you just you do get a you get someone else's perspective which is fascinating right and um and I think when you're when you're so close to your own music you you lose perspective entirely you know Mm, mm. and and you put so much energy and love into something whether it turns out well or not I think I think deep down you kind of know whether you've done a good job when you release an album, you know, um, or when you've finished a body of work. And that, that's that's not just, you know, I'm not talking about commercial releases, I'm talking about soundtracks as well, or anything, mm. any any project, an advertising project. Uh, so, yeah, it's, so, so I guess it's just a, you know, a fine line really, you, you, you can be precious and, and um, but um, I've totally forgot what I was talking about. But yeah, anyway, it's awesome, man. <laughs> <laughs>